everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we are going to be talking about the case of Joe Aradi, who is also known as the happiest prisoner on death row. And today's case is actually something a little bit different because I know I start every single episode with we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. However, that is not what we're going to be doing today because today we are going to be talking about a huge miscarriage of justice. If you've seen Making a Murderer on Netflix, think along those lines. Joe Arady was known as the happiest prisoner on death row because he always had a smile on his face even whilst he was on death row. But the real tragedy is just how innocent Joe was in all of this. He wasn't able to fully comprehend what was happening to him either. I do have to give a warning for today's case because it is an incredibly sad story. It is a story that ever since the moment I heard it, it has never left me. And it's a horrible story to tell, but I believe the story, the true story of Joe Aradi needs to be heard. So let's get into it. Joe Aradi was born on the 29th of April, 1915. Now you guys know that I normally say the star sign of the person that we're talking about here. And it's just something that I like to add. It's not to be taken too seriously. It's just something lighthearted. But I only ever do this for the criminals. And Joe Aradi is the victim in this story. And he was born in the town of Pueblo, Colorado. His parents were Henry and Mary Aradi. They were also first cousins. Shortly before Joe was born, Henry and Mary had immigrated from Syria to the USA in search of work and a better future for themselves. And this is when they landed in Pueblo, Colorado. This is when Joe's dad, Henry, did find work at the Colorado Fuel and Iron Works. And then they settled into a small family home and then they had their first child, which was Joe. Now, Joe has been described as a good natured child who just enjoyed playing at home like any other child would. And for the first few years of Joe's life, he seemed like any other child. However, when Joe did get a little bit older and he did start school, it became clear that Joe was having developmental difficulties. And at the age of five, which is the age Joe was when he started school, he was still unable to speak. So Joe went through his first year at school not being able to speak at all. And of course, this was a struggle for Joe. He struggled to interact and engage with the teachers, his other classmates. And by the end of the first year, the principal called in Joe's parents and basically said that Joe was unable to be taught anything and that they shouldn't even bother sending him back for his second year. The head teacher said that he was incapable of learning anything and there was absolutely nothing that they could do for him, which is just so incredibly sad. And because the family weren't very financially well off, they had no money to get Joe homeschooled. They didn't have any money to send him to a private school. So Joe just spent the next three years just at home with no education. And during these three years, Joe had zero interaction with any other children. Most of the time, 
he just spent on his own. He just spent playing by himself. And during these three years, Henry and Mary did go on to have two more children, another son and a daughter. And the two extra children did push the family further into poverty. And because of this, Joe's dad, Henry, started bootlegging where he would illegally produce and sell alcohol. And because of this, this did land him in prison. So when Henry went to prison, of course, that left Mary to take care of the children children. And because of this, because she had three children to look after, she also had to find some financial income somehow as well. Joe got even less attention than he already was. Like he was already getting basically zero attention and he ended up being quite neglected. And of course, this further impeded his development. Joe would just spend most of his time on his own. So once Joe's dad, Henry, was out of prison, he realized just how much Joe had been struggling and he really wanted to do something about it. He wanted to get the son the help that he needed. So he went around to the neighbor first and he went around to the neighbors and he was like, I don't know what to do about my son. He needs help. Like, I don't know what to do. And the neighbors basically said that he needed to go and speak to the courts to see if the courts could get him a place at a school that would actually support Joe and give him the care that he needed. And that is exactly what Henry did. He went to the district court and he asked them if they could get him a place at a school that would meet his needs. This is 1925, by the way, when this is all happening. And Joe is 10 years old at this point. And the court decide to grant Henry his wish and they do give Joe a place at the Colorado State Home and Training for Mental Defectives. That's obviously what it was called back then. It's not called that now, but that is what it was called back then. And this home was 300 miles away from where the family lived, which is a hell of a long way. So obviously sending Joe here was basically sending Joe there on his own, like the family wouldn't be able to visit him. When he got there, it was determined that Joe had an IQ of 46, which corresponded with a six-year-old. And obviously Joe is 10 years old now, and even 46 was on the lower end of the scale. And Joe could barely talk at this point point. He also couldn't read. He couldn't write. He couldn't add up just simple numbers. He couldn't even tell colors apart. At the home as well, they did describe Joe as very passive and that he was a follower. And definitely remember this because that is a key element of this story. Joe was then officially diagnosed with the term imbecile, which I know is a derogatory term. I'm not saying that. This is the 1920s and that term was still in use. So that is what Joe at the time was diagnosed as. So a few months go by, Joe is in this home and Henry starts to feel really guilty because he feels like he's just sent his child away. He feels like he has abandoned Joe and he's not helping him. I mean, obviously he sent him to this home that is 300 miles away. He doesn't have a clue what is going on with his son. And this feeling plagued Henry for nine months before he did make the decision to pull Joe out of this home and bring him home. So at the age of 11, Joe went back to the family home, but no provisions were made for Joe. Uh, so he just went back to the way things were. Joe continued to go uneducated. He continued to go on basically looking after himself. He was just on his own 
most of the time. Most of the time he did just play games and these were games that probably a child a little bit younger than Joe would play. Probably a child around the age of five or six, which is obviously where his IQ is, where a child would just take any object. It didn't need to be a toy, but they would just take any object, use their imagination, turn it into a toy and turn it into a game. And that is basically what Joe did. And this is how from the ages of 11 through his teenage years, Joe spent his life. And when he wasn't playing his games, Joe would just aimlessly walk around the town on his own. However, one day in September in 1929, something absolutely horrific happened to Joe. And I'm going to give you a warning here. We are going to be talking about sexual assault. So if you don't want to hear this, just get forward like a few minutes. So Joe is currently aged 14 at this time. And Joe is just out in the streets wandering around on his own like he did most days. And a group of older teenagers surround him. They start to taunt him. They intimidate him before they then force Joe to perform sexual acts on all of them. And whilst this is going on, a probation officer just so happens to be walking past. He saw the situation, he went over, and thankfully he broke it up. So at this point you're thinking, oh great, a probation officer has seen what's gone on, he's seen what's gone on with his own eyes. The teenage boys can be reprimanded in however way they need to be, and Joe can get some help for the trauma that he's just been through. Like you're thinking, at least it's been caught, okay? Um, but this is not what happened. The probation officer wrote up a report on what happened because obviously he broke it up and he's a probation officer. And instead of condemning the teenage boys for what they had done and also uh, stating Joe's innocence in all of this because Joe did nothing wrong, he instead wrote, I picked Joe up this morning for allowing some of the nastiest and dirtiest things done to him that I've ever heard of. Yeah, you, you, you heard that right. The probation officer is solely blaming Joe for everything that happened. The probation officer said that Joe allowed himself to be sexually assaulted. Nobody allows themselves to get sexually assaulted. I know we're in a different time period, but they still had a brain. Joe didn't even have the mental capacity to even know what was going on. He didn't have the ability to defend himself. I just don't know how in any world the probation officer would think that Joe in this situation is guilty of anything. The probation officer then wrote further down in his report, quote, he is one of the worst mental defective cases I have ever seen. And the probation officer as well said in so many words that Joe is a danger to the public. How? I don't know how he jumped to that conclusion. And because he was such a danger to the public, he should be returned to the Colorado State Home. And this is what happened. Joe was immediately transferred back to the Colorado State Home that he had previously been in. And once he arrived at the home, they were warned at the home to keep an eye on him because Joe is a pervert. I just have no words. <laughs> So then Joe ended up spending the next seven years at this home from 1929 to 1936, right up until the age of 21. So Joe is 21 at this point and his whole stay at this home, the whole seven years, Joe was monitored for sexual incidences to keep an eye on his sexual deviant behavior. But guess what? 
there was no incidences because Joe wasn't a pervert. And Joe actually never expressed any interest in sexual relationships in general, ever with anyone. And throughout the seven years that Joe was at the home, he spent the majority of the time in his room. He wasn't allowed to attend the lessons, like he wasn't allowed to go to the school, like in the home, because his condition was too unstable. And I just wonder, like, what do they mean by this? Because I couldn't find anything more out about what they thought was unstable. Was it purely just the fact that they thought he was a pervert and that's what they labeled unstable? I just don't know because there's just nothing about Joe, his demeanor, his character, anything like that, that screams unstable at all. And Joe at the age of 21 is still really struggling with his communication. He was able to understand the odd word at the age of 21 but he wasn't able to understand like a few words strung together in a sentence. And then on the 9th of August, 1936, Joe is still age 21 at this point. Joe ran away from the Colorado State home. Joe left with three other boys and they'd hopped onto the back of a train because there were some train tracks that ran at the back of the home. And the train took them to Pueblo, which if you remember was Joe's hometown. And when they arrived, they all got off the train and the three boys separated from Joe and Joe stayed at the train station. And Joe just stayed at the train station. He wandered around and I don't even know if he realized that he was back in his hometown. But I also don't know that if he did realize he was back in his hometown, would he have been able to make his way back home anyway? So I don't know, but Joe didn't leave the train station and he stayed there until the three boys returned and all four of them hopped back onto a train and made their way back to the Colorado State home. Now, at some point on this return journey, Joe did get separated from the other three boys and Joe also jumped off the train. It's not known why he jumped off the train. It's also not known where he jumped off the train, but Joe's whereabouts went completely unknown for over a week. It's thought that he just passed his time wandering through the local towns in the area that he jumped off the train. But to be honest, no one really knows what Joe was up to in this time when he was just missing, essentially. And even when Joe has been questioned about this after, Joe, because of his communication skills, couldn't really explain well enough why he did this or where he was or anything. So Joe's whereabouts were not known until the 20th of August, 1936. And this is 11 days after he jumped off the train. So Joe has just been wandering around for 11 days and it truly just breaks my heart because he must have been so confused, maybe scared as well. And it was on the 20th of August that Joe was finally taken in by a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Gibson. Mr. and Mrs. Gibson operated a Pacific Union traveling kitchen car, which is basically just like a restaurant kind of thing on a train. And I think they were quite popular back in the 1930s. So Mr. and Mrs. Gibson saw Joe just wandering around by train tracks. And at this point as well, Joe had crossed uh, state lines. He was now in the neighboring state of Wyoming and he was in the town of Cheyenne. And Joe went up to Mr. and Mrs. Gibson 
and I don't know how well he communicated it, but he basically asked if he could work for them in exchange for food. And the Gibsons took Joe up on this offer. He was able to work in the kitchens. He was actually a dishwasher. And in exchange for Joe working, they would keep him well fed. And Joe absolutely loved this. He eagerly washed the dishes in exchange for a good meal. And this is what Joe did for the next six days as the train traveled around the local towns. However, after these six days, were up, Joe was let go. And it was because the train had to go further afield. I assume they maybe had to cross state lines. And because Joe wasn't technically a registered employee, they wouldn't be able to take him with them. So Joe was let go and he was dropped back in the small town of Cheyenne, which is where they first came across Joe. They probably just assumed that that is where he was from. And Joe went back to what he was doing before. He was just wandering around on his own. However, it was just a few hours later on that same day that police officers saw Joe just wandering around the train tracks. The police went over to him and arrested him for vagrancy. So Joe was taken down to the station in Laramie County, Wyoming. And when he arrives, he is questioned by the sheriff there. And this is a man named George Carroll. <laughs> we don't like him. I'm just going to say that now. Sheriff asks Joe for his name. He asks him where he's from. Joe obviously says his name and he also says that he's from Pueblo. And as soon as the sheriff heard Joe say Pueblo, his ears pricked up. Because just over a week ago on the 15th of August, there was a brutal murder there. Two young sisters had been brutally attacked in their home. The older sister, Dorothy Drain, was 15 years old. She was sexually assaulted and brutally attacked by the intruder. And very sadly, she did not survive the attack. The younger sister, Barbara Drain, was 12 years old. She was not sexually assaulted, but she did suffer multiple blows to the head. And she did survive this attack. But the injuries to Barbara were still like quite bad that she ended up in a coma because of her injuries. The parents of the two girls were not home when the attack did happen. So the only witness to this crime was Barbara, who was currently in a coma. So remember I said that this case gives me making a murderer kind of vibes? Well, it's kind of from now that I get those vibes from this case. And this is basically where the miscarriage of justice starts, even though... Joe has already suffered many miscarriages of justice already in his life. So like I said, the sheriff's ears pricked up when Joe said Pueblo. And the murder of Dorothy was quite a high profile case and it was still unsolved. And the sheriff basically saw an opportunity for himself to solve the crime and make a name of himself, boost his ego a little bit. So the sheriff asked Joe where he was when the murder took place. And the murder took place during that time where Joe's whereabouts are not known. So Joe didn't have an alibi for the murder and because of Joe's communication skills, he wasn't able to communicate with the sheriff exactly where he was on the day of the murder. So the sheriff began to question Joe 
quite aggressively, let's just say, and I think we all know how this went down. Joe didn't really understand the questions that he was being asked. Questions were very leading. And Joe is a people pleaser. He just wants to make people happy. And he was giving the sheriff the answers that the sheriff wanted. There was no lawyer present. Joe was never read his rights. And because of the leading questions and because Joe wanted to give the sheriff the answers that he wanted, it wasn't long until the sheriff essentially forced a confession out of Joe. And every time Joe confessed to the crime, he gave a different version of events. That's because he wasn't there, but the sheriff didn't see it like that. The sheriff didn't care about anybody but himself in this situation. As far as the sheriff was concerned, Joe was the man that he was looking for and the case was going to be all wrapped up. So remember that the sheriff was based in Wyoming, but the murder happened in Pueblo, Colorado. So now that the sheriff had the confession out of Joe, all he needed to do was phone the police department over in Pueblo and say, we've got your man, we've got the man for the murder. But the Pueblo chief of police just says, well, that's weird because we've got a man here locked up and we're pretty sure that he's the killer of Dorothy Drain. The man that had been arrested over in Pueblo for the murder of Dorothy was Frank Agula. The police arrested Frank when he was acting suspiciously at Dorothy's funeral. And when I read this, I was just like, oh my God, this just sounds like Criminal Minds because how many Criminal Minds episodes have there been where they've gone to the funeral of the victim and they're looking around at all the guests at the funeral trying to figure out who the killer is. That's basically what happened here. And after they had arrested Frank at the funeral, they searched his home, they found the murder weapon. And they also found out that Frank used to work for Dorothy's father and had recently been fired. So he had a motive. Basically, everything pointed to this Frank guy being the killer. The only thing that they didn't have was Frank's confession. So you would think that the sheriff, George Carroll, the one in Wyoming, the one that is a piece of shit, would be like, oh, okay, we've clearly got it wrong. Like, Joe is not the man that you're looking for. Like, you've clearly got the man, Frank. We'll let Joe go. No. The sheriff is determined to prosecute Joe for the murder of Dorothy Drain. Even though Joe is giving different versions of events for the murder, he doesn't know what happened. And Joe also struggles with communication and it was pretty obvious that he did as well. Like just, I don't know how the sheriff was allowed to get away with this. So basically the sheriff, George Carroll, went to the press and made a statement that he had the killer of Dorothy Drain. Basically trying to steamroll over the whole investigation, take control and make sure that his narrative was out there. And then all of a sudden, Frank confessed to the murder. So you would think now the sheriff would be like, oh, okay, so all of the evidence points to Frank. Frank has now confessed to the crime. That confession was not obtained under duress like Joe's was. Frank must be the killer. We'll let Joe go. No, unfortunately that didn't happen. The sheriff now came up with a new theory and his theory was that Frank and Joe 
acted together. And in the end, both Frank and Joe were charged with the murder of Dorothy Drain. So the case went to trial. Both Joe and Frank were going to be tried in separate trials. Frank's trial was first. And at the trial, the prosecution called on 12-year-old Barbara Drain. Thankfully, she had recovered and she was out of her coma and she was able to give evidence. And the prosecution asked Barbara, like, do you see the man that attacked you and your sister? And Barbara, I identified Frank because Frank was the attacker. And the jury as well thought that the guilt of Frank was pretty clear and they didn't take long. And after the trial, they did find him guilty and Frank was sentenced to death. So now it's Joe's trial. And Joe's defense wanted to put forward a plea of not guilty because Joe was not guilty of this crime. But instead they decided to go for a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. They just thought that Joe had a better chance of getting off with this plea. Three psychiatrists all testified and said that Joe should be deemed insane and that he had the mental capacity of a six-year-old. And Joe's defense lawyer, asked Joe some questions whilst Joe was on the stand to try and demonstrate to the jury that Joe lacked the capacity to carry out a crime like this. And the questions that Joe was asked went like this. He was asked, do you know who George Washington is? Joe replied, no. Do you know what this hearing is about? Joe replied, no. Can you read? Joe replied, not so good. Can you write? Joe replied, sure. Can you write more than your name? Joe replied, no. However, unfortunately, one thing did stand in Joe's way in the trial, and that was the sheriff, George Bloody Carroll. Yep, he was there. He was determined to see Joe go down for a crime that he didn't commit. It's like, George, go away. You don't even go here. Go back to Wyoming. You're in Colorado right now. Go away. The sheriff obviously took the stand, didn't he? And he gave all of the details of Joe's confession. And the prosecution argued that Joe knew exactly what he was doing and he should be deemed sane. Barbara Drain, the surviving victim, for some reason, I don't know, because obviously she took the stand in Frank's trial, but she wasn't called as a witness in Joe's trial. So why wasn't she called in Joe's trial? Oh, I know why, because if she was called in Joe's trial, she would have identified that Joe didn't do anything. And the sheriff's testimony, unfortunately, seemed to sway the jury. And after three and a half hours of deliberating, the jury did find that Joe should be found sane, and they found him guilty, and he was sentenced to death. So following the trial, Joe obviously ended up on death row and his execution was scheduled for October 1937. So literally not long after he was convicted. And whilst he was on death row, a prison warden called Roy Best did take a special interest in Joe. He could see that he was innocent and he didn't belong there. And he kind of like took him under his wing and treated him almost like a son. And he has said that Joe didn't even comprehend like what was happening. Like Joe didn't know what was going on. Joe had no idea that he was on death row. And he just walked around with the biggest smile on his face. Joe was honestly just happy that he had somewhere to sleep and that he had food to eat. Joe actually said that he enjoyed being on death row because he wasn't picked on. 
He was always picked on in the Colorado State home and Roy, the prison guard, took pity on Joe and he would regularly bring gifts in for Joe. They were mainly just toys for Joe to play with because remember, in Joe's mind, Joe is only six years old. He just wants to do what any other six-year-old wants to do and that is play and it's just so heartbreaking, isn't it? Just he's so innocent and he's on death row. It's it's just truly heartbreaking. And one toy that was Joe's favorite was a wind-up train and he would wind it up and he would send the train down to other inmates on death row and they would all laugh and joke. And the other inmates as well would send the train back up to Joe. And it's just truly heartbreaking because Joe doesn't know what is going to happen to him. And this led Roy, the prison guard, calling Joe the happiest prisoner on death row because he truly was, he was happy. And this quote has obviously stuck to this case and this is what Joe is most well known for. Roy, the prison warden, did work with an attorney to try and appeal Joe's execution. They did manage to extend the execution date a few times, but despite their multiple attempts to try and clear Joe's name, they were unsuccessful. And Joe's execution date was finally set. Joe was asked what he wanted for his last meal, but Joe didn't understand the question. He didn't understand like, what do you mean my last meal? And he didn't answer them. So they just gave Joe his favorite food for his last meal which was ice cream. On the morning of Joe's execution, he was able to see his family. Very sadly, his dad had recently passed away, but his mom was still able to see him. And his mom was just crying the whole time. But again, Joe didn't understand why his mom was so upset. He could see that his mom was crying, but he couldn't understand why she was upset. And after the visit, Joe just went back to his cell, none the wiser. And he went back to doing what he loved to do. And that was playing with his toy train. And that is what he did until he was taken to the gas chamber. And then on the 6th of January, 1939, Joe Aradi was tragically executed. And then after this tragic miscarriage of justice, this case went unnoticed for a very long time until half a century later in 1992, an author came across a poem written by Roy, the warden that basically told the story of Joe Aridy. And the author became fascinated with the case of Joe Aridy and decided to write a book on the case. And after this book was released, it inspired a whole new organization called the Friends of Joe Aridy. And basically this organization was determined to clear Joe's name. And that is exactly what they did. In 2011, 72 years after the execution, Joe Aridy was officially pardoned by the state of Colorado. This was a travesty of justice all the way around. Not only was Joe factually innocent, um, he was also incapable really of defending himself in a court of law. And, and hopefully we've done better over the years in both those places. But uh, in looking at this, it was, it was really apparent that what had happened to Joe was an awful, awful tragedy of justice. It was announced that Joe was wrongfully convicted and that the death of a man with the mind and the spirit of a child would forever be a tragic event in the state's history. A new headstone for Joe was commissioned and on that headstone it says, here lies an innocent man and displayed is a photo of Joe doing what he absolutely loved 
and that was playing with his toy train and he has the biggest smile on his face. And that is the incredibly sad story of Joe Aridy. It has to be one of the saddest stories I think I've ever heard. It's such a tragedy and I think this case really does show just how wrong the criminal justice system can get it sometimes and even though this case happened in the 1930s, it still happens today. Innocent people are still convicted of crimes that they didn't commit. They are still convicted and sentenced to death. And unfortunately, it seems like ego plays too much of a part in the criminal justice system. And that brings us to the end of the episode on Joe Aridy. I am really sorry, that case really broke me. And I'm really sorry if I've made every single one of you so sad today. I'm really sorry if I've ruined your day. I was in tears when I was researching this case. It is so heartbreaking. But thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in the next one.